Welcome back, Warriors. Quay Mean Deluisi Pam Palmeter, and I'm the host of this podcast, The Warrior Life. We cover everything from native sovereignty, treaties, and land back to decolonization and reconciliation and how to support the struggle. So if you're interested in hearing from native peoples from sovereign nations all over Turtle Island, talk about their experiences with indigenous resistance, resurgence, and revitalization, then this is the podcast for you. On today's podcast, I have another amazing guest. You might know her as the award-winning author of the book, A Mind Spread Out on the Ground. So stay tuned. You don't want to miss this podcast. Welcome back to a new season of the Warrior Life podcast. We have lots of guests in store for you this year because while there's literally a ton of amazing Native peoples all over Turtle Island doing incredible things and totally representing our people. And today's guest is no exception. Alicia Elliott, who I will bring on right now, is one of those amazing people that I have just been waiting forever to meet. Of course, COVID had to get in the way, you know, and all of these extended <laughs> years of not being able to have uh, meetings and gatherings and things like that. But I will take this as second best because I have been a fan of hers. I've been following her on Twitter, follow her writing, follow everything that she does because she's just so amazing and she's not afraid to speak her mind and speak out for what's right. And that's something that's not always very common in this world. So Alicia Elliott, she is an award-winning author whose writing has been recognized with a ton of awards. And here's just some of them. Gold at the National Magazine Award in 2017, the RBC Taylor Emerging Writer Award in 2018, and the Evergreen Award in 2020. And she's been nominated for others. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. Welcome to the Warrior Life Podcast, Alicia. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome because like, I'm such a big fan. But before we get into my five billion questions for you, proper protocol is that um, I ask you to introduce yourself in the way that you like to. Yeah, for sure. Um, so... Uh, Sego. My name is Alicia Elliott. Um, uh, my Nguahome name is Nguadalunhiade. And uh, I, well, I, I was born in Buffalo, but um, I, I kind of moved around a lot. Um, and my family, well, my father's side of my family is from Six Nations, but my mother's side of my family is a lot of like um, interconnected um, Europe, like a European settler um really kind of like a mutt situation <laughs> with just like Hungarian, Irish, English, Scottish, et cetera, et cetera. It was like a thing that she would just rattle off. So um, anyways, so I have that, I have mixed ancestry. Um, uh, I, I do identify as, um, as Mohawk. That's what it says on my, on my status card. It says lower Mohawk. So <laughs> oh, no, you're a lower I know. Mohawk. I know. <laughs> So anyways, I don't I don't technically say that I'm a lower Mohawk, but you know, no. on Six Nations, there's like, um, we call there's like upper enders and down belowers based on like where you live on Six Nations. Oh, so, okay. Anyways, 
of wondered if it had something to do with that, but I don't know. Totally. So. <laughs> oh my gosh. That would be such a cool name. I'm a lower Moa. <laughs> <laughs> it would be good, but I don't know. I, I feel like they're then, you know, cause I don't know if you know Mohawks, you know, we're all kind of like, <laughs> we're all kind of going for a fight. And stuff like that. So, yeah. It's going to be like, Oh, the lower Mohawks, they're no yeah. good. <laughs> Oh my gosh. That's awesome. Well, cool that you're from Six Nations because, you know, you're not that far from Toronto. And I have to admit, Six Nations is one of the best powwows there are in Canada. It's so huge. There's so many people that come from all over. And honestly, I've never gone to a powwow that has more vendors. You know how they have them yes. all set up in the woods area part where it's all shaded? There's like a million vendors and food vendors and, oh, my gosh, the dancers and drummers. Definitely one of my favorite, I have to admit. So that's pretty cool. Maybe I will see you at Six Nations powwow sometime. <laughs> I'll finally get to meet you. That would be awesome. You know, there's actually this hilarious story. So like early on in my writing career, I wrote like um, a, a piece and it, it, um, it was one of the pieces that ended up in my book and uh, they were trying to look for a, like a stock image to use. And so they looked up um, Six Nations powwow and it was just a random Six Nations powwow image that they came across. And it was so funny because my aunt was actually in the picture it was just such a coincidence that she was just walking by and I was like oh my god there's my aunt Susie <laughs> so my family like it's it's everyone my, a lot of my family lives in Buffalo so they all come down for the powwow every year and we all just kind of camp out on my aunt's lawn essentially um so yeah I I love the I love the six issues powwow it's like a huge obviously event for for all of us on six but you know my my family is like really into powwows so <laughs> My uh, so my aunt dances, or a bunch of my cousins dance, um, oh. you know, and stuff. And my my niece is actually just um, she just got her outfit made so that she can do smoke dance, which is like you know, oh, yeah. um, uh, specifically Haudenosaunee dance primarily. And uh, she is also trying to learn um how to fancy dance. So oh. she's uh, she's just so adorable, and she like she she brings up YouTube videos. <laughs> to like Aww. figure out how to do it on her own she's so cute so maybe she'll be dancing next year but either way I'll, I'll be at the powwow so if we, if we meet up that would be great oh that would be so awesome and I you know what I have to admit I actually love you know there's pros and cons of social media obviously right but there is so much information on social media that I, I really think the pros outweigh the cons. Our ability to connect with one another, like even what we're doing here and the ability to learn things, you know, especially if you don't have access to people all the time. I think it's fantastic and how you see elders on there teaching language and, you know, like that part, I really, really, really like. It's it's awesome. But uh, anyway, so that's, that's our plan. One of these years we're gonna meet at Six Nations Power Up. <laughs> Yes, it's a good plan. <laughs> well, okay, so just pretend that there's actually someone in the universe who doesn't know who you are. Would you like to share a little bit about your journey? Like, you know, what was it like growing up? And did you always have this vision that you were going to be this amazing writer? Uh, yeah, so I, um, I, I well, I guess... Um, you know, like I said, a lot of my family grew up in Buffalo and that's where I was born is, is in Buffalo, New York. Um, and if you know anything about Buffalo, it's like, 
uh, there's a lot of Ongwe Hongwe people there. Um, and uh, uh, I lived there for a, a while, but then we kind of, um, my family was kind of uh, like moving around a lot. There was a lot of instability in the home, especially regarding like poverty. So we were always moving different places. And so um, we moved around through Ohio. And then uh, when my, um, when my, I guess he would have been my step grandpa, <laughs> you know, how all of these, uh, all of these different configurations of family work. Um, but he, when he passed away, um, uh, it left my dad with some, with some land and he wanted us to, like, he wanted us to move up to six nations. And I think he was also just feeling like very disconnected and wanted to reconnect. And, uh, so at that time I was probably in grade I think I was in grade nine. And so we moved um, up to six nations after living in the States for a long time. And uh, it was like totally, totally different. Um, uh, I, it was kind of unfortunate for me because by the time I got there, um, if you, if you live on six nations, there's all of these elementary schools that go up to grade eight, but um, uh, high school, unless you're going to uh, the immersion high school, which I didn't know Mohawk, so I didn't go. Um, uh, I had, you, you basically have to be bussed off reserve. So you can either go to Caledonia or Hagersville or Brantford. And, um, I ended up going to Brantford. So basically, um, I, I came to, uh, high school, didn't have, didn't know all of the people who had gone to school their whole lives on the res. And so I was kind of like, I'm, I'm also kind of in general, I would say kind of shy. And so, um, uh, I was, you know, I was like, I gotta just make one friend and, and kind of stick to that. So, um, I, I had a group of friends, but, um, you know, my dad was very much pushing us to like, get, um, get, get back involved with the community. And so, um, I was involved in some like youth groups, um, indigenous youth groups, which were kind of, which were, which were fun. One of them was like, um, an improv group and me and my sister were the only young people. <laughs> all a bunch of old uh, a bunch of adults who were like in their 30s and and that it was just me and my sister and we would just go and perform kind of these like um I guess kind of uplifting kind of comedy skits um at different uh schools um around the area trying to um kind of like the the point of them was to try to build pride um in different Indigenous, specifically Ongwehongwe, um, like uh, Six Nations people, because that's mostly who was in the area. Um, so that was really fun. And then from there, uh, right around that time, there was um, stuff going on with Red Hill Valley, which um, if you're aware of the Red Hill Valley Express or Parkway, I think it's called. It's this highway now. Um, that all used to be like um, wooded area. And uh, before it was made into a highway, there was resistance um from not only the people who like lived around there but there were people from six nations who had built a longhouse and i remember um going to visit there and my dad um being very much wanting like wanting obviously for the highway not to pass through because it was going to basically cut 10 minutes for people but you know how it is and uh and at that time there wasn't the same um there that was kind of i think like the start of a lot of um, you know, land protection resistance um, at Six Nations, because shortly after that, we had um, what happened at Gunastado, which was um, 
uh, it's called Caledonia, or it was called, I think, the Douglas Creek Estates, which was the what what ended up becoming, I guess, what everyone refers to as kind of the Caledonia land reclamation. And, um, you know, uh, when that started, I was young and still in high school. And I was, um, uh, we had this project in in high school where I kind of had to do uh, um, a documentary. And I decided to, instead of doing it as a group with a group of people, I just did it by myself, um, because I wanted to do it on the the land reclamation at Gunnestado. And so, um, and that was like early, early days. This was before um, uh, what happened with the, um, the police coming in in April uh, and uh, basically clearing everything out. And then there was basically as a result of that, um, people put up barricades and and closed down uh, the highway and, and used, did that as a protection measure to keep police off. Um, because at that point, the police had promised that they were going to inform people if inform the uh, the police informant and and the people at the site if they were going to bring in police because there were um uh, elders there there were women there there were kids that would stay there sometimes so they they really just wanted to know if the cops were going to come in and clear us out as a result of the injunction that the um that the developers filed um so that we had enough time to like get our get our like vulnerable people out of there and they promised that they would and then they didn't and so then all of that stuff happened and it kind of um became i think more of a national story from there um so anyways um i was there kind of as a as a kid in high school um i remember going and like as part of the documentary because i am i do look white i was able to go across the the um uh the barricade to where there were a whole bunch of white people um, who were not on Wihongwe, who were um, kind of very angry. They were yelling. They were saying all this stuff about, you know, um, it was, it was really scary. Actually, there was people, sometimes they were like saying things like fire and blood, which was kind of like these kind of Nazi kind of adjacent um chance and they were saying like go back to your side if they saw when they saw a visibly indigenous woman come and she was like I live here I live in Caledonia what do you mean go back to your side like wow what are you talking about and so you know being able to see all of that stuff I think really um shaped me politically in a, in a very particular way and so from there I, I kind of um knew that I wanted to to talk about these things because I felt I also was very aware that the media was not doing a good job covering the situation at all, um, that they were very much giving um, uh, megaphones to people who had no idea what they were talking about, who had no idea the history of what was going on, because um, I was in like some of the early meetings um, because it was women originally who who decided to do this. Um, at Gunnestado, they the women got together for meetings on Six Nations, and we had a couple different sites that they were looking for. They were looking at to potentially stop because there was just encroachment and encroachment, encroachment on Six Nations, and so they had a couple different sites. But what they did was they literally went through the act, the whole history of the of those lands, looking at every single deed going all the way back to determine this was not like this was not 
um, signed over at all ever this land. And so the, this, uh, the Douglas Creek estates was being built on stolen land that we had good claim to. And, uh, you know, it was, I think it's always the women who really kind of push these movements forward. And if you don't have the support of the women, then, you know, it's not going to, it's not going to work out well. <laughs> so, um, so it was really awesome also to see those women at the time. Um, Janie Jameson was, um, was doing a lot of stuff and Don Hill um, from my community, but then also seeing how they got burned out because they were constantly talking to all of these reporters and trying to get across these things. And they were so eloquent and they were so smart and they knew everything about what they were doing, but, you know, seeing how they were treated by the media treated by um, non-indigenous Canadians and, and everything and seeing them go through such burnout really, really like affected me as well. So um, yeah, anyways, that was kind of like, <laughs> uh, kind of like, I guess, informed my, um, my politics a lot. Um, but then in terms of writing, I, I kind of wanted to be actually a visual artist <laughs> when I was younger. But, um, and, and when I was in Ohio, I lived, I went to a school where they had a really great, or I was about to go to high school at a place where they had like a renowned fine arts program. And I was so excited. And then when we came to Six Nations, I went to uh, my high school, which is uh, named after Pauline Johnson, who is um, a, a half Mohawk or like a, a Mohawk. And, uh, and I think her, I think her mom was um, English, but she might've been other things too. But anyways, she was, she was also mixed and um, she's a writer, a poet. Um, she's a performer. And so the high school is named um, Pauline Johnson Collegiate Vocational School. And um, uh, anyways, I went there and uh, they didn't have good arts program. <laughs> so I just kind of like pivoted because I had always loved reading and and kind of writing my own stuff. And then I just decided from there, I was like, well, I guess I'll just do writing. <laughs> <laughs> and so kind of went from there. There was a period where I thought that I might want to just like uh, where I was like, I have to be practical. I can't just be a writer. I have to go to journalism school mm -hmm. or something like that and be a journalist first to make money and then do uh, my other writing on the side. But then uh, I went to, when I was in my first year of university, I got this, um, uh, or I got this program or um, I don't know if they still run it, but global um, news in Toronto had like an internship program and I got the spot. And um, so I did a, a summer internship there. And I, I think there's a lot of good people who, who work uh, there, but I, I hated it um, mm -hmm. just in terms of me seeing like, even in the morning watching at like the editorial meetings where they would um, like, they would say, okay, this is, these are the stories for the day. This is who I want you to interview. And it was like very clearly, very clear to me that like the, the way that, that, that they were very clear who they wanted to interview, what kind of perspective they wanted to put out and, and things like that. And so it was very disheartening for me, especially because I think at the time, um, I can't even remember what was going on, but there was also another, um, uh, I, I want to say it was in Tyendinaga. There was another, um, uh, a land claim situation happening and uh, they didn't ask me to go. <laughs> They, uh, they got these two white guys to go. And um, I was I, I was not super happy with how they uh, how they covered it. And so anyways, I was just like, this is not for me. <laughs> like, they, 
the, the they want little clips that are just like nice and short. But of course, you can't get across the complexity of a lot of these issues when you're just dealing with these short little clips. And so, you know, sometimes I would go and interview someone for um, because they couldn't send a reporter. And I'm asking these questions that are like talking about the history of these things and all this stuff. And, and none of that gets used. <laughs> it's just the, the nice little like clean clip that they can just insert for like, you know, five seconds and, and that's mm -hmm. it. And so. I was just like, yeah, broadcast journalism isn't for me. I don't think this is right. <laughs> and so um, that's when I pivoted to creative writing. And so from there, I kind of, it took a while, but like, um, uh, you know, eventually I started uh, once I was done university because I had my my son young. I was, um, uh, I was pregnant at 17 and then I had him at 18. So I was like doing university while also mm -hmm. every single week coming back home to, uh, to try to parent as much as I could while my... Um, uh, my mother-in-law was doing like the primary caregiving um, and and providing during the during the week essentially. So it was like it was very difficult, but I I eventually got through it and you know um, uh, eventually started kind of writing these creative nonfiction pieces and um, kind of thinking through a lot about um, politics and stuff like that. Things I didn't see that were being talked about. Um, uh, especially because I think Haudenosaunee people have such a, a strong history of oratory. We, um, if you ever look at any of the press releases that are, that come from the Haudenosaunee um, Chiefs Confederacy Council, they 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 know the history. They um, they they have like this way of of um, having this. I just I I I just. Like the way that they they even they write, you know what I mean. These these things is is reminding everyone of this history, is reminding everyone of these important connections, um, and they're so smart and they're so, um, you know, like accessible as well. They're they're not written in a way that's difficult for anyone to read, um, where you need like a, a university education to understand with these like catchphrases or or you know um, or terms like that, and so. I just thought that those were like, so what make me proud to be Haudenosaunee. And I wanted to try and like do what I could to, to help in that regard <laughs> of like, you know, um, uh, making it so that it's not just a few people who are, who are kind of writing about our people and our struggles and our worldview and culture and philosophy and stuff like that. I wanted to be able to, you know, make sure that, uh, our people were strongly represented because I, um, it's weird that in Canada, there's actually not that many um, Haudenosaunee like literary writers. I mean, Janet Rogers is out there and like, there are other, there have been other writers too, but um, you know, it's, it's so surprising to me because so much of our history and so much of our philosophy has shaped so much of the Western world, even too. And if you look at um, our, great law it shapes the um the constitution in the u.s the uh, even the american feminist movement was very inspired by um the the women there were um at the seneca falls convention you know what i mean it would they were right near the seneca and so they were seeing haudenosaunee women and saying like wait a second why don't we have that and so like you know all of these different ways that um even in terms of like our own um, confederacy and the way that like u.s um democracy kind of pulled from that 
Um, but I mean, they didn't pull, I think the, the most important things, which is why they, they keep getting it wrong. They didn't, um, you know, think of the importance of women. They didn't think about the importance of the earth and, and all of that stuff. So, um, anyways, I, I feel like I'm rambling, but <laughs> no, not at all. this is like the background story. That's the gold. <laughs> But yeah, so anyways, I started writing and, um, you know, writing these essays. And eventually, um, I was very fortunate that um, I connected with an agent who then was like, or well, also um, our, uh, another fellow writer, her name is Ailet Spari. Um, and she basically was like, why don't you just write a book of essays? You already have some. And I was like, you know, that's a good idea. <laughs> Instead of like writing from scratch, because I had always had this idea that to be a real writer, you have to write a novel or like a book of short stories or things like that. And I was just like, okay, well, that can be later. <laughs> That's awesome. I, and you know what? I've had that same feeling because I remember like my kids are older. They're 28 and 30 now. Uh, and I had them when I was going through university. But when my first book came out and then my second book came out, we were just sitting around the table and I was like, oh, I, I can't wait to write like a real book someday. And my <laughs> kids are looking at me going, what? what? Mom, that's a book. That's, there's like, <laughs> that's a book. It's got a title. It's sold in stores. And I was like, no, 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 no. Like a real book, you know, like a novel, a story. And somehow I've grown up thinking that, you know, unless you're writing like this famous Stephen King novel or Dean Coons or something like that, that it's not really writing. I mean, I've come to realize yes. otherwise, but even as an adult, I have to catch myself saying, wait a second. Okay. Yeah. They're books that that counts. <laughs> as a book. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. It's so weird that this is like, there's this kind of idea that it's not real if it's not, yeah. you know, if it's not fiction for some reason. <laughs> yeah. Which is, isn't that ironic? Because fiction isn't real. Yeah. <laughs> it's a nonfiction that's real. So here we are. Hey, unless we're making shit up, this is not a book. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> oh my gosh, that is so awesome. Well, I love hearing the backstory because here you were, you wanted to go into arts and then you're like, oh, okay, I'll go into writing. And here you are, this like amazing award-winning writer. It just reminds me when I talk to Chief Ladybird, you know, the famous artist. Um, oh, during her. her during her emo stage, she wanted to be a mortician. <laughs> Thinking like, <laughs> imagine where we would all be if we ended up doing the things we thought of when we were kids, for example, or when we got older. Anyway, just yeah. find that. Cute. Yeah. So here you are a writer. And so what, what were the challenges? Like, I know you talked about, you know, being in journalism and what the challenges were. Did you have similar challenges when you were in university? Because, you know, different indigenous peoples have had different experiences depending on where you went and the kind of topics you were taking. Did you have any of those there? Um, I think that for like, well, when I was doing, um, because I ended up, um, I was supposed to be majoring in English, but then I, uh, I made a mistake with, um, with one of the courses I took. And so then I had to swap so that I could just graduate on time to a creative writing major and then an English minor. I was going to do a double major before that with creative writing. Um, so I took a lot of English courses and I was actually really fortunate in that I, I didn't like, they made it a requirement that you have to take some sort of either Shakespeare course or some course that basically has like 
that's looking at English texts from like the 1800s or, or something along those lines. And that just didn't sound like fun to me. <laughs> um, and so I was like, oh, God. Um, but they did actually have this really cool course um, uh, that was called, oh, my gosh, what is it called? It was, um, I can't remember what it's called, but it was basically, <laughs> but it was basically about um, uh looking at shake oh plays and counterplays and so it was uh we would read a sh the original shakespearean text and then we would um and then we would look at post-colonial responses or feminist responses um in terms of other plays or films and um uh you know like for example we would look at you know king lear and then we would watch um akira kurosawa's um I think it was Ron that was uh, that was King Lear. And so like stuff like that, like um, or um, Janet Sears plays or, or like it was so it was like really cool, um, uh, you know, instead of just looking at uh, looking at, you know, Shakespeare and being like, OK, this is like blah, blah, blah. This is English. And like I was, you know, I was very much like ah, colonial. <laughs> so, <laughs> and so it was like fun taking that. But um, I do think that, you know, um, I, I was fortunate in that I was careful in the courses that I chose. So trying to make it so that, you know, there were, um, that they sounded like they were by people who were really interesting mm -hmm. <laughs> and like had better points of view. Um, and I did take a, a diaspora course as well. Um, that was taught by, um, uh, I believe she was black and lumby. Um, so she, uh, she, uh, the, the professor, um, I remember her last name is Alston. I think her name is Vermonja Alston. But anyways, um, she was uh, she was just so intimidatingly smart and would talk about um, and like the texts were so good and the way that she taught was so engaging. And I, I'm someone who like I need I need challenges or else I get bored. So if it's just something that's like easy, I'm going to not want to do it. So knowing that she had like these really high standards that she expected of us and, um, you know, that she was super smart and all of this stuff, like made me really want to impress her. And so, <laughs> and, so um, uh, and, and the way that she kind of assigned theoretical texts as well to, alongside those made me understand how to write in a way that wasn't just like the five like hamburger paragraph hamburger yeah. essay format that like all of these other classes were kind of telling me to write in. And so kind of being able to break out of that form really helped my writing. Um, and I would say, yeah, like um, I, I, I do wish I did wish that there was like, I don't think there was at the time any specifically indigenous courses. She did have um, indigenous um, texts on her syllabus, but there was not any specifically indigenous like lit courses, I believe at the time I went to mm -hmm. York um, for my undergraduate. And when I was in my creative writing class too, it kind of was like, I felt like I had to, I had to like, when I was writing creatively, I, I felt like I had to kind of um, make sure that I was always translating my link or not, not just my, not just language, um, I, but like, the culture and, and, and the experiences in a certain particular way um, because there were so many non-native people who were reading my work. And so that kind of felt um, a little bit frustrating, I guess, but uh, you know, I did have, I, I did have some good teachers there. So I was happy about that, but it was, kind, it was very like, 
um, it, it, I, I feel like I wish that there were um, Indigenous professors um, in, in the English department and creative writing department that could have, like, you know, that I could have commiserated with a little bit <laughs> about some of these things because there was at the time, and this is like such a, such a weird thing to say, but I remember we were um, like uh, with my creative writing class, we all kind of went out for drinks or something. Um, and uh, one of the other students came up to me and basically said like, Oh, you're definitely going to get into an MFA program and get published because you're native. And, you know, um, and I was just, and like, that's really like basically the idea that it was trendy, which was hilarious because this person um, ended up getting into MFA programs and I did it. So I was like, where, when am I supposed to get, get, you know, the, where's the immediately get published card uh, for me? It didn't happen at all, but um, it was funny because I think that, you know, um, I think that that really kind of strengthened my resolve getting rejected mm-hmm. from all of these different places mm-hmm. uh, because I was just like, no, I, I know I can do this. I know that I can I can write and that um, I have talent and that I can foster that talent and 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 may and write something that that resonates with people because, um, you know that was something that I felt strongly about. And I, I, I was just like, no, I know I can do this. Um, I'm just kind of like stubborn and very Mohawk in that way. I was yeah. like, no, I'll do it. So, so I didn't get into anything, which I think is funny um, considering that person's comment, but um, you know, it, it's, it, it, it is interesting because at that time even, um, so that would have been around 20, I want to say 2010 when I graduated. And so it was before, um, like uh, two years before the the truth and reconciliation really started coming into, um, into consciousness within the public life of Canada, but also within the arts scene. You know, there was like, I think a lot of money that kind of came with um, this, this idea of kind of reconciling with indigenous people through art and that continued to roll out through things like grants and programs like that, Mm -hmm. that were actually incentivizing publishing indigenous writers. Whereas before there was that, that didn't happen. Like it was like, Oh, we already have our uh, indigenous author. We have Thomas King. We don't need another. Yeah. 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 And it was mostly Indigenous men, too. So, like, that was one of the things where it was just like, okay, cool. So, I guess you don't think I have anything to contribute. Um, Which, again, just made me be, like, very much more voracious or uh, voracious, I guess, about it and ferocious. I was just like, no, I can write something important, too, damn it. (laughs) I love it. That's awesome. I mean, that's really awesome talking about people's experiences, because I think, you know, us as Native people, whether we were going through skills training or just, you know, through work or through education or whatever, we've, I think just about everyone I know has gotten that, oh, well, you're only here because you're the token Native or you don't really have a law degree, Pam. You know, they, I'm sure they just pushed you through. And the funny thing is, is that the way I reacted was, always trying to do more so it's like oh okay well if my law degree isn't enough I'll go get my master's and then they're still saying off what do you know about law it's like okay I'll go get my doctorate but then you have to realize at some point in time for those people you're 
there's nothing you can do to prove to them. Mm -hmm. So it's really got to be about what's important for you and your community and all of that stuff. So I love yes. that you were like, heck no, I'm doing this. I'm, <laughs> I'm just going ahead for you what you have to say. And, 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 and look at how it turned out. I mean, that's so amazing. So would you say for aspiring writers, so, you know, young native people who want to be writers someday, do you think that the, the formal education stuff, like we always have our traditional education mm -hmm. um, from our nations, but do you consider the formal education helpful as a writer or do you think it's necessary? Well, okay. So I, 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 I had a little bit of both. So I, I went through for my undergraduate and was in for a couple of workshop classes. Most of the creative writing is like kind of workshop model. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I did get some stuff from that mainly. I would, I would say I mainly learned from the teachers to be honest though, um, mm -hmm. instead of like workshopping with other students, because I find that one of the weird things about um, a workshop model is there's this notion that, um, that these, that all of us who are amateur writers know how to critique something, know mm -hmm. how, know how to, um, that, that we have this inherent knowledge about structure or character or, um, or anything of these sorts that, um, are plot when we don't really know what we're talking about. And so like, you know, I would get, there were some times where we get comments that were, were interesting, but even myself, I would say at the time. I didn't really know what to critique about. I didn't really know whether something was working or whether it wasn't because I didn't have that knowledge about um, what makes something good character work or what makes something good plot wise or, or, or any of those things. And so you kind of run into that sometimes, I would say, um, when you're in these workshop classes is these people who are saying something and they, they just feel like they, because they have an opinion that it's worth repeating. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and, and a lot, I would say, I mean, I'm not trying to stereotype, but I would say that in, in general, um, also people have this weird way that like white people in particular have this weird way of critiquing work that comes from another culture where they don't necessarily understand the cultural touchstones or, um, or things like that, or why something is important. And, um, and, Although I didn't go to an MFA program, I did actually go um, do kind of like a short fellowship at UBC um, where I would sit in on a couple of, um, of workshops and I had read the pieces prior to coming and I was just kind of listening to all of the students. And so I was like, oh, this is uh, it kind of occurred to me. Oh, this is what I would have been dealing with if I had gotten into the MFA program here, which I did apply to um, and then later got in as a fellowship totally on my own accord without any MFA. So I thought that was kind of funny. But um, when I was sitting there, it was interesting because there were people who, um, there was someone who was writing about her culture and um, it was not a white culture. And, uh, and white students were one of the, I remember distinctly one of the white students saying that it didn't feel authentic. And I was just like, what do you mean? Like, what barometer are you measuring authenticity by when I'm looking at you? You are not part of, like, you know, I mean, listening to you, you're not part of this culture. And she literally said, oh, yeah, I, I don't really know. But like, this doesn't, this doesn't feel authentic. And I was just like, what do you mean by that? Like, wow, you have to you know, take a step back and consider what is your under, what is your understanding of this person's culture? 
where did you get that from? Did you get that from them? Or did you get that from like, you know, a potentially racist depiction that now then you're forcing on this person who actually knows their culture far better than you ever will. Um, and now we're all supposed to take your comment seriously. Like, I don't know. I was just, uh, so it was stuff like that. Like, and that wasn't the only situation yeah. where something like that happened, but it was like, I was just like, Oh, actually, you know what? I think it would have been better or it, it was, it would be better for me to have, it was better for me not to have gone there because I actually talked to one of my other friends too, who, um, who went through an MFA program and she basically said she stopped bringing in any work she cared about to workshop um, and started writing that by herself for her thesis, um, but didn't bring any of that into workshop because she was like the, the critiques I got were so ridiculous and um, racist and harmful and not helpful to me at all as a writer. And so she just like, was like, I'm just, so she, she had to write, twice as much as everyone else because she was wow. writing just these things to bring into class wow. because to protect her, her real work. Um, and so for me, I was like kind of happy that I didn't get, go through that because I could see how frustrating it would have been for me. Mm -hmm. And I'm also someone who, who is not quiet when it comes to those <laughs> sorts of frustrations. And so I was like, I probably would have pissed off a bunch of fellow students. I probably would have pissed off a bunch of professors. It probably would have been like pushing uphill the entire way. So I was glad that I didn't go through that. But, um, you know, I, I, and I also think that, you know, um, I do think that like for me anyways, I, once I got out of university and I was like, no, I want to be a writer. I just started doing stuff myself. Like I just started looking at and um, being like, Oh, what are my favorite books and going back through them and saying like, mm -hmm. okay, I really love the character in this book or the story. I want to go back through and look at how they created this character. Like where, when did they give what details, what impact did that have? Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, and, and even just kind of like, you know, <sighs> reflecting on, on like, language and, and and things like that and how also like I wanted to write because it was very important for me having gone through university and seen how you know academic language can get very dense and um and it um, and I was like you know I don't want to write in a way that makes it so that people from my res especially if I'm writing about our people will not be able to pick up my book read it, understand it and be able to engage with it and, and tell me if I got something wrong or tell me if, you know, if they have a different perspective, if they heard it a different mm -hmm. way, you know, I, I, so for me, that was when I was like, kind of like, you know, it was important for me to kind of get away from the Academy at that point, because I felt like if I were to stay in it longer, it would start to almost like corrupt my, mm -hmm. my mindset a little bit where I would start using these, th these, these, these terminologies and stuff that might, create a barrier um, for the people from my community to be able to access and engage with my work. And I just didn't want that. So um, I would say that, you know, like young writers, just do what feels right for you. Like if you mm -hmm. feel like you want structure, then, you know, then I think that a, a creative writing program could be really good. Um, you know, it could for giving you that structure, for giving kids a sense of community because you're working with a whole bunch of other writers but I do, I would say with the caveat that like, you know, um, not all, just because someone is a teacher is doesn't mean that they know everything. Just because someone's a fellow writer doesn't mean they know everything. You know, 
what you're trying to accomplish with your writing. And if you're trying to carry your culture, you know that that's a, mm-hmm. a burden that's very, while very heavy, it's also very important that you carry it properly. And so, and the people who you might be engaging with might not understand that. And, you know, it's okay for you to just be like, you know what, I don't need any of your comments on the cultural aspects. I have that well in hand. Um, I just want you to focus on um, things like, you know, on, 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 on things like structure, on things like plot. Is this working? If it's not, why, what isn't working? That's what you could tell me to, to make me, uh, to, yeah. that I can take away and then go back and say, okay, so this isn't working. How can I redo it? Mm-hmm. Like those kinds of like building blocks type situations, because, you know, once people start getting into this idea that they they think they can say what's authentic or they can start uh-huh. saying, oh, uh, why do you have your language in there? I can't understand that. Like, that's, that's yeah. just going to frustrate you. So yeah. don't, don't worry about that. Just worry yeah. about what you can get from the program if you go in that way. But also, if you don't want to do that, if you don't have the money, if you can't get in, that there's still ways to do this. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like I, I feel, I would feel, I honestly feel like I'm in a better situation and I was in a better situation when, um, after four years of like really seriously trying to focus on my writing, getting it out there, getting it published mm-hmm. at different places than some of the people who went through for a master's um, in writing, mm-hmm. because I, um, I found out early on from another indigenous person who hadn't gone through an MFA program, how to apply for arts grants and like, you know, how to do these things so that I knew how to do all of this stuff that they didn't know how to, how to do once they came out of their MFA programs and I had to explain it to them. So, you know, I think that, Mm -hmm. you know, there's definitely ways to do that. I would definitely look at if you're interested in writing, um, what the different grants program arts grants Mm -hmm. programs are not only nationally, but provincially. And even if you're in a city like Toronto or, Edmonton or Vancouver, the city councils of the arts, and then uh, kind of taking that and saying, okay, what do I need to do so that I can apply for this grant? Um, How many publications do I need before they consider me a professional artist? And then you can really start kind of, um, kind of getting what you can out of that and, um, and having a goal for yourself. So that was like one of the things that I did where I was like, okay, I know I need three publications in different places where I get paid and paid could include just a journal copy of, um, of whatever I publish in. Um, and once I hit that, then I'm considered a professional writer for the Ontario yeah. Arts Council. And then I can apply for grants and that will give me time off. Cause at the time I was working at Starbucks. So like, it was like a very demanding <laughs> job where I was up at five 30 in the morning, serving coffee till two every day. So, you know, at, like I was able to take some time off to be able to work on my writing. And stuff. so like, those are the kinds of things that w- are kind of ways to circumvent the traditional kind mm-hmm. of MFA program. Because also when, when you're working on an MFA, a lot of um, arts programs will not um, like, it's not technically okay with their rules if what you're working on is a thesis for um for university or for a master's program to oh. apply for a grant for that purpose so you know okay. these are like the kind of tips and tricks that you can kind of do yeah. to kind of start. there's so many different ways to get to that um to get to where you want to go and i just would say that you know try really think about what would be best for you um yeah. and what you can do because people have barriers um in terms of mm-hmm. being able to go to university or different things, you know? 
I think that's really good advice because, you know, there's, everybody has dreams. Everyone has things that they want to do, something that they always thought they'd want to do either as a profession or as something that would just be fulfilling, you know, a passion. And there's so many like societal messages around how you have to do those things, you know? Mm. So if you want to be a writer, you have to go to school, you have to take English, you have to do these things. If you want to be an artist, you have to go do all these other things. But then you look at some of the world's most amazing writers and artists, and they never did those things because they didn't have, they didn't have the opportunities to do it. But nowadays, like, like what you're saying, you know, you can go a different route. It doesn't have to be a formal education route. It can actually be a different route. It's and think about all the people who are self-taught on things. Mm. I think that's just phenomenal. Like, and we have access to so much information now. So for me, um, I didn't know how to do podcasting. I didn't know how to record audio. I didn't know how to edit. Like, I was thinking, why did I go to law school, man? Like I should have gone to audio video school or something because <laughs> I want to create content and I don't know anything about it. And my kids were like, go watch YouTube. I was like, what do you mean? And they were like, mom, everything's on YouTube. Go watch how to edit, what programs to use, what's free. What? And I was like, really? Like my kids like, were the ones telling me how to do everything. So yeah, I, I learned how to actually record and edit and you know, do all of these things from YouTube. And I don't have any training in all of that stuff. And so I think these are really good lessons that if you have a passion or a dream, whether it's a profession or not, there's a multitude of ways to get to where you want to go. It doesn't have to be what society says all the time. You know, society has this formula, go to school, get a job, you know, pay your bills kind of thing where you yeah. can have that or other things or a combination of things. It doesn't always have to be, you know, that specific, that specific way. So I just, I love your story about how you also found all of these other things and other ways. And so the, the thing, you know, I'm just dying to ask you about, of course, is your <laughs> book. How did your amazing award-winning book come to be and I'm going to put the little picture up there mine's <laughs> on the ground <laughs> how yes. did this come to be because okay, it's just everybody all over social media just never stops talking about this book uh one of the teachers who um I had in my last year of my undergraduate uh in creative writing was a writer named Michael Helm and he uh, decided to, for his course, have it not just be um, the advanced fiction workshop, but advanced creative nonfiction as well. And one of the things that uh, um, he kind of introduced us to were were these writers who were doing this amazing um, creative nonfiction. And I had never, like when, when I was, you know, like, like I said, the, you know, before I was like, oh, real, real writing is fiction writing. And so I had always like, kind of assumed that the, it was either you write boring articles or you write <laughs> fiction and he kind of totally exploded that idea by introducing me to um specifically I want to say Joan Didion um she wrote this book called um the year of magical thinking which was um you know written by a uh, written about a period in her life that was very very um tra traumatic wherein um her her daughter um 
had, you know, uh, basically fainted um, when she was on her honeymoon or, or something like that and went into this coma and no one knew what was wrong with her. And so her and her husband were like devastated. They didn't know what to do. She, they, they were just waiting. And it just so happened that while this was happening one night randomly, her husband just died. Um, uh, I, I don't recall exactly what it was of it was, but it was very sudden. And so all of a sudden she's alone in her family and trying to work through all of this grief, not knowing whether her daughter will, um, will wake up and, and all of this. And so the year of magical thinking is kind of about this, the way that kind of grief impacted her life. And she talks about how, um, you know, it, it was like interspersing her own personal narrative, her own personal history with like, you know, talking about the ways that culturally we deal with death in America or in, in other places and, and what it means to lose someone. And so kind of the way that she kind of moved so fluidly back and forth between research and um, and her own individual story and, you know, the way that she played with structure and everything I, that was like, to me, it was like, I was just like, this is the best thing I've ever read. <laughs> it's just like, I had no idea you could even do this. And it was allowed. <laughs> so um, from there, I kind of, uh, it, it kind of created this kind of spark in me where I was just like, wow, that's really cool. And it wasn't until um, later that I, I, you know, once I was out of university, and I was like, okay, well, I have to try and like, publish things. And so, uh, cause that's what you do. You have to publish things. You have to get publishing credits. And so I was like, okay, I have to send out some stuff to different literary journals to try and get published. And one of the, um, one of the journals, um, I believe it was the Malahat review, which is, um, you know, based out of, uh, what is called BC. Um, and, uh, you know, it was their first full creative nonfiction issue. It was all creative nonfiction. And I was like, oh, this is exciting. <laughs> and I was like, I should write something for this. And um, and so that's where um, one of the pieces from my book um, is called, uh, which one is it? I think it's called Child. Um, no, it's not. It's called Wait. Yes, <laughs> I had different names for it. So it's called Wait and um, uh, W-E-I-G-H-T, like a weight that kind of brings you down or whatever. <laughs> I don't want to use that as like necessarily the terminology because the the piece was about my my own experience um as a as a teen mother first realizing that I had gotten pregnant and then you know my catholic mother trying to encourage me to adopt out my baby to catholic people um through like a catholic adoption agency and then deciding no I don't want that I'm going to try and figure things out and then you know what it was like to be a mother in university, not telling anyone that I didn't have my kid with me because I was embarrassed and ashamed. And so I, it was a lot about me trying to um, kind of deal with that shame. And like, I was like, where does that come from? And so I, that was kind of like the seed of the piece. Um, and, it, and uh, you know, the idea being like, this was uh, you know, supposed to be this weight that, um, that I had to carry, but it was also, you know, something that 
I viewed at the time um, because I had held stereotypes as well about um, about teen mothers before I became one. I was like, oh, those girls, <laughs> you know, what are they thinking? And then I was and then I, I, I was one of those girls and I was like, well, this is what they're thinking. They're very, you know, they're very full of shame for the ways that people treat them and, and, and uh, you know, in situations where maybe they don't feel confident or comfortable. This isn't something that, you know, is um, really given a lot of thought or, um, or empathy. And, and at the time there was, it was still like this whole idea of teen mom on like the TV show from MTV, making it like these, these girls are just drama and all of this stuff. Right. And so, um, and so I kind of wanted to write about that. And um, from there, I, I wrote a, a, a fairly short piece. It was kind of divided into three sections. The idea was kind of like the structure is kind of like trimesters. So like um, before, during, after type situation. Um, and so, uh, you know, it was for me, it was like just really a great way to kind of write about my personal experience and then kind of weave in other um, other observations about, um, about how, how teen moms are treated, how specifically indigenous teen moms are treated, um, and about society in general, kind of weaving those in. Um, and so that happened, or when I wrote that, it, it actually got accepted for publication. And so I was like, super excited. (laughs) Um, and I, I think I got, I received word that I got, that it was going to be published. While I just so happened to have gotten into um, the Banff Center uh, for the Arts, it used to run this Indigenous Writers Program. And I was in the last cohort, which like is kind of funny because I feel like we um, we accidentally killed the program. <laughs> but um, uh, anyways, I won't go into that. But while we were there, it was it was an amazing experience in terms of like they had just the best mentors there. Um, uh, Wabgijig Rice was there as one of our mentors, um, the author of, at the time he was writing actually, Moon of the Crusted Snow. Um, Cherie Demeline was there. Um, she was one of our mentors. And at the time she was working on um, a short uh, story collection called The Gentle Habit, but I believe she was also working on um, uh, Marrow Thieves. And um, and then also Leanne Simpson was there, Leanne Betasomasake Simpson. And so like, you know, she was um, at the time, I think she she did part like part of her some of her musical performance. And so like it was just this like really exciting group of mentors. Joseph Boyden was there, too. But um, we don't I, I don't need to get into that. But <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, that was back when, you know, his his uh, people were still thinking he was indigenous. So anyways, um <laughs> Our, our cohort didn't like him very much. I don't think he liked us either. So, um, in any case, <laughs> um, uh, but you know, it was amazing to have these 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 indigenous writers, um, none of whom had gone through um, an MFA program and who were who had all of this knowledge to give us and all of these, um, you know, and and all of these opportunities that they knew they were aware of that they told us about and stuff like that. And so while we were there, I was kind of starting to to work on um, some short stories, one of which actually is um, like um, became is what became kind of became this novel that I'm working on now. Um, So like, uh, that's another thing to just never give up on your like on your old pieces, just keep them around because you never know when they're going to come back. Um, But yeah, so anyways, um, after that, I was able to kind of get um, uh, uh, I met Leanne and Leanne had um, 
been given the opportunity to um, edit the first ever all indigenous issue of the Malahat Review. So it was the same magazine. Um, and that was right when they were starting to have all of this kind of reconciliation money, um, like giving incentives to these journals to um, have ways of uh, uplifting indigenous people. And so this was one of the first real initiatives of that in a literary journal. And I remember I wrote a short story and I submitted it to the to the to the magazine. And I was like, maybe it'll get published. That'd be cool. Um, but then uh, Leanne messaged me and she was like, hey, you should uh, you should do something for creative nonfiction. I'm the creative nonfiction editor. And I was like, OK, I can't say no to, to Leanne Simpson. I have to say yes. I have to do it. So like I um, at the time I was actually super depressed and um, I've dealt with depression throughout my life um, and also seen it, um, uh, you know, with my mother who. Uh, who has dealt with bipolar disorder and um, and schizophrenia elements throughout her life. So, you know, um, I was thinking through like how it felt like I couldn't talk about it. I felt like I couldn't um, mm. say what, what was going on. And I started thinking through like what depression is and thinking through what would it like asking my sister, what would, what would be the word for who, who was learning Mohawk at the time? Um, like what would the words for depression be and, and, and Mohawk and, you know, kind of all of this stuff dealing with um, trying to treat this and also coming to this realization that like, you know, how much of this is that our brains are wired wrong and how much of it is that the world around us has pushed us into this situation that is very, very um, uh, unhealthy for mm -hmm. not only Ongwehongwe, but all humans. Um, and so, you know, really from there, I kind of, um, uh, I was like, well, I guess I'll write about this. <laughs> this is, this is what I've got. And so I really forced myself to write it. Literally, she even reminded me, she was like, I haven't gotten your submission yet. And so I was like, oh my God, I have to do this right now. Um, and it's funny because the short story I submitted ended up not being chosen for publication, but, um, the piece that I wrote for Leanne, um, uh, was, uh, the, the title essay of mine spread out on the ground. And um, from there, it kind of like had this amazing trajectory where it was published. I was really proud of it. But then um, the Malahat Review put it forward for a national magazine award and it won gold. And so um, and it was really awesome because the, at the time there were there weren't before that there weren't a lot of indigenous writers who were getting acknowledged for um, for their amazing work at mm -hmm. the National Magazine Awards. But like, you know, that issue, that original issue of the Malahat Review had so many amazing writers. Um, and like, I believe it had very early Billy Ray Belcourt, um, some of his uh, poems published in there. It had a very early um, uh, story that ended up becoming Johnny Appleseed by Joshua Whitehead. Um, uh, I believe Dallas Hunt was published in there. Uh, Yaz Morgan was published in there. Um, uh, it was just like this amazing kind of collection where you saw that there was all of this creativity bubbling and like, you know, just exciting. And it was actually, I believe it was a, to this date, the only um, issue of their literary journal that they put into a second printing because it was so popular. And I think that was for me, the, the, the first realization that like, people really want to read indigenous stories. Like we have something very special to offer. And I think that's where, you know, you, you now, I mean, that's very clear when you look at like, you know, bestseller list in Canada, 
a lot of it is indigenous writers, um, a, a nonfiction, fiction, and children's fiction or children's uh, children's books. A lot of it is that, and like you could, I feel like that was kind of like where I was like, oh, this is something like amazing. Um, oh yeah, Lisa Bird Wilson, I think, um, had a, one of her early stories in the book that ended up becoming probably Ruby, which is like a great book as well. If anyone hasn't read it, it just came out this year, I believe. Um, but yeah, so it was just like, you know, all of this amazing stuff. And from there, I was really fortunate in that um, I, I, because I kind of can't keep my mouth shut on social media, <laughs> I had kind of like, I had kind of created a little bit of a, of a following there and, you know, started to kind of write these op-eds um, also because I was just like, you know what? No, I'm tired of this. I have to like write something about some of these issues because these people are not, um, are not thinking through these things. Well, like they're, mm -hmm. I, it's so, they're so disingenuous. They're so like, you know, I mean, all of these things, they're so racist. They don't know their own history. Um, all of these things. And I was just like, you know what? No, I'm going to, I'm going to start writing these things. So that all kind of kind of created um, a, a situation where um, uh, an agent approached me. And then, um, like I said, my, um, uh, when I came for the award ceremony for the national magazine awards, this other writer named Islet Spari basically was like, so what are your plans? And I was like, well, I guess I should write like this collection of short stories because again, I was like fiction. Right. Um, and she was like, well, you already have some like essays and you're getting a lot of attention for those. So like, why don't you write a book of essays? And I was just like, oh, you're a genius. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, why did I think of that? And it's funny because actually my husband was suggesting um, that I write like about uh, write it, but the way that he had phrased it was as a memoir. And I was like, I don't want to write a memoir because I had just had this idea of a memoir as being like, you're born and then you're a child. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. Adult, and then I'm still alive and writing this. So that's the end of the book. And I, <laughs> I just felt that was boring for me. I was like, I don't want to write that. That sounds boring. But just the reframing of it as basically like, a memoir and essays, essentially, uh, that made that excited me because then that opened up what I could write about. So, you know, like in the book, I have stuff that I was just like, I really, I don't know, just really excited and, and interested in writing in. So like, I was just like, okay, I'm going to write an essay about food and my relationship with food. And then that kind of, I like to research a lot. So I started researching all of these things that kind of seemed a little bit like wild at first um, in terms of like, I was researching kind of like diabetes rates or, you know, things like that. And like what food sovereignty looked like. And, and then all, all of a sudden I was researching um, stuff about, you know, um, uh, I don't know, like, <laughs> like what was happening with residential schools and, and, and food experiments and, and things like that. And, you know, I was like messaging people and asking because I, I wasn't an academic and I didn't have access to their um, their their academic work, asking if they could just send me a copy so that I could like read it and, and doing all of this stuff. And so I thought that, you know, that was exciting for me. That's very intellectually exciting. If there's something that I'm interested in, um, I think it, it always makes for the writing better because then you can kind of see that that like excitement almost or feel it on the page, even if you don't like are consciously aware of it, I guess. And so, you know, me being able to do that and like really think about how, uh, about things through the lens of not only colonialism, um, but also just, you know, um, think through things in terms of capitalism, thinking through things that I was like nervous about talking about, like um, in the last essay in my book, Extraction Mentalities, it's about abuse and complicity and 
what it means to, um, you know, to be living in a society that is so inherently abusive to the people and the, you know, and the world that it lives in, you know, in terms of even just water, air, um, animals, you know, fish, birds, all of that, like it's, it's inherently abusive. So what does that mean? And, um, all of, so kind of taking all of this and kind of, um, thinking it through in ways where I'm, yes, I start talking about my own individual experience, but I, I, I kind of zoom out and talk about how this is um, evidence uh, or, you know, this is just one way that this can go. This is how history puts pressure on a person. Um, and so we end up enacting these patterns that you can see if you zoom out a little bit, that it's not just us, that it's, um, that it's something that's consciously been created and um, some, and therefore something that can be reversed. And so that's kind of like where I wanted a lot of my essays to kind of also be aware that people who, that the people who I wanted most to feel at home in my work were indigenous women and, and uh, two spirit and queer people. And so I was like, they're always so traumatized already. I don't want to like make everyone feel depressed when they're reading it. Like I, I can point out things that we, that we already know or that we experienced and maybe haven't talked about, but I want to, leave space for there to be hope for something different because it wasn't always like this and it doesn't have to always be like this. It can be something different. This stuff is actually very recent um, in the history of not only humanity, but the planet. Um, and, you know, I think that if we really reframe it, we can be like, okay, this doesn't have to be this way. We can change it. And how can we go about doing that? And um, that's kind of what I wanted is like there to be this kind of hope that it doesn't have to be like this, that there is a possibility of something different because there used to be something different, uh, you know? And so anyways, <laughs> kind of that story, my book, long and drawn out. No, it's, it's, I think that's probably one of the reasons why I'm sure there's a lot of reasons why your book touched so many people from so many different backgrounds. So not just everyone who has exactly your background, but it's, it's real, it's honest, it's things people don't want to talk about sometimes, sometimes, you know, but it's connected to the wider reality. So it's like this amazing mix of personal but set in the what the context is so it's not just personal and I mean every day you see someone making some kind of comment on social media about your book who's just read it or who's recommending it to someone or people like when I look at all of the comments you see th like the majority of the comments are people saying that it was brave and honest and open and in a way that a lot of people still don't even feel like they can be in their lives. You know, they, people don't want to admit what they perceive as their weakness or their insecurities or any of those things or, or connect it to what's really happening around them. So that's, yeah, you know, it has to be one of the most powerful books that was ever written. And I just love the story about how it came to be, you know, because it's never the way you see on TV, you know, how a writer just goes into a, a room and, with his dog and types out this amazing <laughs> award-winning story that's so detached, you know, like this one is, is very personal. So, but, you know, before we go, I always ask what's in the hopper. Is there anything cool and awesome coming up? I mean, you've done this, what's coming next? 
Yeah, so I kind of mentioned it like a little bit briefly, but um, I, I'm working on a novel right now, which is funny because it kind of started as a short story that started to get longer and then longer and then longer. And so and then I was like, you know, maybe this is a novel. <laughs> and and also there was another short story that I wrote that I was like, I can't get this right. And so I just kind of put them both away um, and always intending to kind of come back to them. And I kind of... Um, realize kind of serendipitously that like these could all be part these could both be part of the same book they could be the same character and then that kind of um that kind of get, gave me the threads to be able to kind of weave together oh my gosh okay so this could be a novel and um that that novel is um is currently i'm actually editing um right now it's supposed to be coming out in fall 2023 it's called And Then She Fell, and it's uh, about um, uh, a Haudenosaunee woman who comes from Six Nations who basically kind of gets it gets caught up in this kind of whirlwind romance with this white academic, and uh, they, they get pregnant and have a baby, and she's living in Toronto away from her people for the first time feeling very isolated, even though it's on her own lands, and, uh, you know... Her mother also um, previously passed away before her baby was born. So she's feeling very unmoored um, from her people, but also from her, her family and feeling very doubtful about motherhood, having a hard time connecting with her baby. And this, um, and then something from her past kind of comes back up and uh, she starts to kind of um, see things and, and all of this. And so anyways, that's kind of like a, a, a kind of brief, yeah. Um, little taste of it but anyways it, it kind of kind of follows her her trajectory of her her mourning and also trying to figure out who she is as a mother um and and especially against you know um in in the midst of academia which like you know um for for Haudenosaunee people has a very very particular um place because uh you know the the entire field of anthropology was very very much um uh, founded almost upon the study of Haudenosaunee people by non-Indigenous academics. And um, so I, I, I felt like, you know, there is so much written about us, but I wanted to really engage with our, with our philosophies, with our, our culture and all of this stuff in a way that pushed against that. Um, and so that's, um, that's kind of through this book. So it's, it's, it's exciting for me because I, I just like, I, <laughs> is probably so obvious but I, I just love I just love my people I love our culture yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I like to you know kind of hype us up <laughs> so. yeah well no of course not we're we're allowed to be proud that's awesome and I can't wait to read that book that's just so exciting um and before we wrap things up I always ask my guests you know, and it doesn't have to be about writing. It could be about anything. But is there anything in particular that Canadians can do to support Indigenous writers or Indigenous artists or anything in particular? Yeah, I think that, you know, um, I, I mean, the obvious answer is, you know, by our, by our art. But, you know, I think further than that, though, if you wanted to do something more than that, is really to reflect on what what it is that you what what prejudices and what thoughts about our people that you brought that you grew up with or that you brought to the work 
and really think about how that impacts the people around you in your life and take the time to actually, after engaging with that, to have conversations with other non-Indigenous people about things about like, you know, misconceptions that you had or things like that. Because I feel like, um, you know, when we have these the, the, when we carry this shame, it's very, sh people think of it as very shameful to admit that you had carried a racist idea with you or whatever. And sure, it is shameful, but also, you know, the, sh the shame isn't necessarily always our own unless we're, in, 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 you know, um, choosing to continue engaging with this when we know that that's not, that, that that's not good. And so I think being able to admit, oh, I had this idea that I, I didn't, that I thought was fine, but it, it turns out it was actually really harmful. Like even mm -hmm. myself in my book, I tried to, to do that where like, you know, even just in this conversation talking about how I used to have these ideas of, of mm -hmm. pregnant teens, um, especially on the res and when I, and then I became one. And so, you know, really reckoning with why did I have this idea? And then taking the time to talk to other people about it, who maybe are looking for an opportunity to kind of commiserate on that and see that it's not that, you know, the shame isn't in having this instilled in you. The shame is in still continuing to carry it, um, mm -hmm. even when you know that it's not right. And, um, you know, being able to talk with other people and get, make a space for, you know, the, that. I, I mean, I, I guess I should say, like, I mean, it is shameful in terms of a systemic level, but I'm not trying mm -hmm. to say that, like, you know... Uh, I hope yeah. that makes sense. I'm not trying to give like a, a cover for racists or anything like that, but yeah. you know, being aware that these ideas don't just inherently come from us. Yeah. You know, they're not just like we're born and all of a sudden we have these racist ideas. It's just like, they're, they're things that are kind of drilled into us and exactly. that we need to basically extract them ourselves. So, yeah, well, that's good advice. So, you know, and we always say here, Support Indigenous peoples in whatever it is they're doing, whether it's writing or art or content creation, whether they're uh, engaging in land defense, whether they're advocating, they make calls for action, support those calls for action, even things like on social media, tweet, mm. you know, retweet, share, like, follow, comment, anything that triggers the algorithm for those indigenous peoples, because that means that more people will see what they're doing and their voice and their message and their calls for action will get out to more people. And if there's anyone that should be liked, shared, retweeted, <laughs> it's Alicia Elliott. Thank you <laughs> so much for coming on my show. It is a personal victory for me that I actually got to meet you at least this way hopefully at Six Nations powwow sometime in the future but for, yes. for also being honest and, and sharing about your personal life none of that stuff is easy and it you know it, it helps share for other people that there, there is no you know perfection standard there's no one way of doing anything that we can be all of the imperfect ways that we are have all of the good experiences and bad experiences that we have and still find ways to live out our dreams and our passions and have an impact. And I think you're just, you're just a real role model for me. And I hope someday you give a creative writing class or something, because I would be the first <laughs> to sign up for it. <laughs> 
Thank you. That's very kind. And obviously, you know, I told you this before we started recording, but you know, you are like such an inspiration to me. I, I think that you are so strong and so smart and so, you know, full of integrity. And I, I just really wanted to make sure that I made space for that too, because, you know, you, you deserve accolades and you deserve to like, you know, be able to be happy about your <laughs> All of the things that you've accomplished too. So I just want to always make space for that. Very friendly podcast today. So (laughs) thank you to you, Alicia. And thank you to everyone who is listening on the Warrior Life podcast or happens to be watching or reading it on YouTube because there's always a closed captioning option. Thank you always for your support. Keep supporting Indigenous content creators. Follow us everywhere we are. And till next time, keep living a warrior life. Well, I'll leave.